Welcome to the Conscious Relationship Uncoupling and Parenting Summit. It's me, Lucia Gabriela, your host and producer. And today we have the honor to introduce you to one of my incredible, fascinating, delicious mentors. Her name is Francesca Gentile. But before I introduce you to my undelicious mentor, I'm going to read you a little bit about her. Francesca Gentile is an international recognized presenter, initiated shaman in four traditions, conscious parenting coach, certified clinical sexologist, empowered aging specialist, and relationship counselor. She's the popular internet radio host of Sex, Tantra, and Kama Sutra, and co-author of the award-winning sex and relationship book, The Marriage of Sex and Spirit. Francesca is the co-director of the Somatic Central Healing Institute. She leads sacred sites and soul retreat in the Mediterranean. Welcome, Francesca, to our summit today. I am so happy to be here, Lucia. It's always such a delight and an honor to spend time with you. And I'm excited about today's topic about, you know, the conscious parenting and healing the heart parenting. Yes. And training with Francesca is one of the most delicious transformational and soul feeding experiences that you can actually, you know, say yes to. Um, and I am aware that Francesca could have easily done the topic of conscious relationship and uncoupling, but her way of wisdom and depth in parenting, conscious parenting is mind blowing. So I am so excited for her expanding today in our summit the wisdom and the knowledge that she had about conscious parenting. Actually, she has been one of my inspiration to dive deeper into this topic and also to create this summit. So I'm really, really excited about this. So, but before we go into a presentation and discussion, Francesca, we would like to know how do you start in this journey of conscious relationship and parenting? That's such a great question, Lucia, and I, Lucia Gabriela, <laughs> and, um, and one of the things that I'm going to invite are the people that are watching, the people that are listening right now, is as you listen to my life story, I encourage you to also map your life story across it, and to see the places that we might be similar, the places that we might be different, and you know, when we do that, our life stories become an inspiration for each other. They become a map of what is possible. So I was raised in a fairly traditional conservative family that wanted me to be a good child with good values that felt that it was important as it is, you know, to make sure I understood cultural norms, to make sure that I understood the family norms. I was raised in Wisconsin. I was raised by fairly conservative Christians. I really know that they loved me. And when I talk to my students and my my uh, my clients, it's really clear that our parents are loving us to the best ability that they possibly could. And at the same time, they're limited by the way that they were raised, or they're limited by their culture or the cultural norms, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. So when I was growing up, sometimes I would be yelled at or hit. There was the belt, the paddle, the hairbrush, the... Uh, um, you know, the spanking. And when these things happened, I often felt a sense of injustice. That's not fair. I, you didn't tell me that I couldn't do that. I didn't know 
that 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 was a rule and now you're punishing me and that's not fair and there was often this sense of injustice there was a sense of not being heard so when i would try to explain maybe why i did what i did or when i try to explain that maybe i just wanted to be talked to instead of hitting me could you please just tell me what the rule is and once i know what the rule is then i can uh, fulfill that rule I felt that I wasn't being heard. I often would try to tell my parents, you don't need to punish me like this. You don't need to yell at me like this. I am a smart person. You can talk to me. I was around in my 20s. My mother and I were just there and I was swearing at her and I was saying that, you know, that I was just done and I wasn't going to even bother to spend time with her anymore. And she said, you know, Francesca, what do you want? What do you want? How do you want to be treated? And I said, well, I want to be talked to in a kind, calm manner. I want to be explained when there's something that you want or something that you don't want, or there's some sort of rule or something that you need. I want you to actually explain it to me rather than just yelling at me or making me wrong about something that I didn't know was important to you to begin with. And she took a breath and she said, okay. And I said, what do you mean okay? She said, okay, that makes sense, I'll do that. I, Mom, I've been telling you this for at least a decade. I've been telling you this, I know for a fact, since I was 10 years old. And why, why did it take until now for you to listen to me? And her response was, well, you were a child then. And in that moment of you were a child then, was this unpacked in that moment, this sense of, oh my God, this is the core of so much of how we children, is that we don't actually consider them as full adults who have the same rights, who have the same um, value, uh, in terms of communication, in terms of uh, valuing their point of view, as we do another adult. So, so that was a piece of the conscious parent that I would become. Another piece of the conscious parent I would become is going back to that childhood again, when I would feel this profound sense of injustice of why I was being punished and, and the way that I was being punished rather than taught I started to think to myself, they must not remember what it's like to be a child. If they remembered what it was like to be a child, they couldn't possibly treat me like this. So I will remember. And I made this vow to myself. I kept saying to myself, I will remember, I will remember, I will remember. And so when something happened that really hurt my heart, that, you know, especially my family, but sometimes a, a teacher or or a religious leader, you know, some other adult around me, uh, maybe a babysitter, would do something that really hurt my heart, that really hurt my spirit. I would say to myself, I will remember, because I wanted to make sure that, that when I became an adult and when I became a parent, those memories would be alive in me, not just as a trauma that happened to me, oh, how I suffered as a child, but they would be a present to me as don't do this. <laughs> don't do this to 
to another human being, you remember how, how much this hurt you. Do not do this to another human being. And by um, having that mantra from a very young age, that also helped me become a conscious parent when it was, when it was my turn. And then, you know, of course, like I think all of us who are, who are listening, you that are listening, you that are watching, is you're the curious ones. You're the ones who don't want to do the same old thing that was done to you. You're the ones that, you know, you're so delicious, as we like to say, Lucia, Gabriel, and I, you know, you're delicious. And, and we're excited that you're here with us and that you're hungry for this kind of knowledge that will transform your life and the life of your child. Every time I, I I listen to you, it's like there's more juiciness and delicious information coming, and like and so many um, resonances in it that is just beautiful. We really are so excited to learn from you today. The topic of the seven keys to heal the heart parenting. So here we go. Out of that suffering, out of that mantra, I will remember. Out of that recognition that my mother didn't value what I had to say as a human being until I reached 20 or 22. Out of all of that became a journey that I'm going to share with you that ultimately has coalesced into seven keys of heal the heart parenting. For me, it's taken 40 years to really become clear about this and, and lots of courses. And for you, it will be coalesced narrowed down into seven steps that you can integrate into your life as a parent with ease. These seven keys are healing the trauma of lineage, that generational trauma and abuse that can go back to so many things of slavery or concentration camps or something else healing our personal wounds from childhood, the things that happened that may not have been about lineage, they may not have been about our family, they could have been in our environment, the babysitter, the church, uh, the teacher, or something else. They're, they're what happened to us personally. Number three, becoming a mature-centered adult. And one of the things I realized at one point is that I'm not sure I had ever seen a mature-centered adult, that if I wanted to be that, I had to figure out and research what was that to become that, and we'll go deeper into that. Number four, nonviolent communication. So many of us were raised as the norm of shaming, yelling, denigrating, guilting, and we don't even know that there's another way, another world with nonviolent communication. We will discover that. And number five, embracing self-care in a new way, in a way that makes sense and works with our schedules. Number six, giving ourselves a time out. Many of us are taught in, in healthy parenting that we should teach our child to have a time out. But we're gonna look at that a new way. And number seven, working with instead of against temperament. I was blessed to work with Dr. Cameron, who actually created the temperament program for Kaiser Permanente. And his groundbreaking work is something that I'm going to be sharing with you that will bring so much more ease and peace, not only into the way that we relate to our children, but really 
the way that we relate to our beloved and other relationships in our life. To begin this as a dialogue with Lucia Gabriella, you and me, to go deeper into these each of these seven keys and have Lucia Gabriella represent you by asking some questions. Yes, indeed, we have questions regarding the seven keys to heal the heart parenting. So when we talk about healing the trauma of lineage, how do we know that we actually have some trauma in our lineage? Let's talk a little bit more about that. I would love to. This is, I'm going to be giving our, our viewers, our listeners, some homework here. Because how do we know that we have this generational, ancestral trauma in our lineage? Sometimes this is going to take research. It's going to take some conversations with uh, sometimes our parents, our aunts, our uncles, our grandparents if they're alive. Sometimes even cousins or other siblings will have information that we might not have. And I, I was on Ancestry.com and I was doing research on Ancestry.com and I found one of my cousins uh, that was lost to us in my Italian family. There's a lot of vendettas. There's a lot of, and we don't talk to those people. Those people are dead to us. And so, you know, you lose family, family knowledge, family lineage. And when I contacted her and we actually talked, I discovered that uh, this bipolar, this, uh, this addiction to intensity and gambling was rampant throughout the family. And both of us started to take a breath when we realized that this uh, tendency that we saw in our parents wasn't just our parents, that it was something that went further back in lineage. We found out that our grandparents had gambled the family factory away. And, and I don't know, it just started to put things into perspective for us. So sometimes it's going to take some research, putting pieces together, like little things that you may have heard, just a little piece of somewhere, and starting to wonder, why don't we talk to that part of the family? What did happen there? Why do we not talk about aunt so-and-so or uncle so-and-so? And sometimes just knowing what your, what your race is and your cultural lineage is, you can, if you're Jewish, there might be concentration camps back there. If you're Japanese, there were the American concentration camps. If there were, um, if you're African, African-American, there might be slavery back there. Uh, depending, sometimes if you're Irish or some of the other lineages, there might have been an indentured servant. And one of the things I discovered was that in the, uh, somewhere around the mid 1800s, late 1800s, there was a lot of poverty and a lot of uh, waves of immigrants coming to this country that were very poor. And they often couldn't support the children and there was no birth control. So people were having eight kids, 10 kids. My grandmother had 13 children. Only three of them lived over two or three years old. And when they couldn't support these children, they would literally put them on a train and send them out west. And they would just send them to be a servant for someone else's family. And there's a, a Netflix show now called Anne with an E that covers this and how these children were molested and abused and treated as less than, uh, less than human, definitely not a precious part of the family. So we don't know 
but it's worth researching what is back there. And when there's been that kind of trauma, um, abuse, molestation, addiction, alcoholism, mental illness, when that's back there, if we don't heal it in this generation, in some way it continues on again and again. Even if, let's say, I'm not an alcoholic, if my parents were alcoholics or my grandparents were alcoholics, some of that crazy thinking, there's something called a dry drunk, some of those crazy thinking may still be in the family, even though we're not using alcohol. Or when there's been molestation, sometimes there's a reactivity, a sensitivity, uh, an emotional shutdown around sexuality, that even if I personally wasn't molested, that I can feel in my body this fear about sexuality or this shame about sexuality, and I barely know where it's coming from. And it's coming from the fact that maybe my mother was molested or my grandfather was molested or something else. So we start to do this research. And then we, when we recognize it, we can start to heal it. There are workshops on ancestral lineage. There's working on, with a therapist uh, on some of these ancestral lineage issues. And just being conscious of them, I can say, oh, if there's this shame around sexuality that I got in my body, I want to make sure that when I'm raising my child that I'm consciously creating systems of approval and appreciation that have them feel healthy about their sexuality. How can I sing to their body? So I would sing to my son's body and, and say, you have beautiful eyes, beautiful toes, beautiful nose, beautiful penis, beautiful fingers. And I wanted to make sure that I didn't exclude his penis or his buttocks. I, want, I was raised in a family that had shame and trauma around sexuality. And I wanted to make sure that he felt that his whole body was beautiful and that his, his penis didn't get more attention than the rest of the body, but it didn't get less attention either. It was a perfect part of his whole body. And so I consciously was thinking based on the way that I was raised to be so frightened of sexuality, I was consciously thinking, how can I raise him to feel good about his, not only his physical body, but his sexual being, who he is as a sexual being. So we want to, we want to unpack these things. I want to tell you the good news and the bad news. My son is 24 now and he graduated from college and he's looking at graduate school and we have a really great relationship and he trusts me for relationship advice and, you know, sexuality advice. He completely trusts me. Uh, and I will say to you that anywhere that I was really conscious that I did this homework, I created a new, more whole, more holistic, more empowered way for my son to be raised. And anywhere that I was unconscious, anywhere that I forgot to look at what was a wounding in my family lineage or my personal uh, childhood experience, I unconsciously uh, perpetrated on him. Uh, one of the woundings in my family was money. I think it comes out of some of that bipolar swinging. So bipolar people, uh, manic depressive people go between creative, energetic, delusional about money um, at the height of their mania. And then they can go into like a depression and a, and a, and a kind of a clutching and a, 
uh, a protectiveness and a, and a greediness about money, a criticalness about money or about anything at the other end of their spectrum. And I knew there was wounding about money, but I didn't address it in my, before I had my child. And what I did is I tried to just avoid talking about money, but it ended up feeling very frightening to my son that I didn't, that I didn't talk about money. And I think my own, once again, you know, that fears that you don't address that get going to the next generation. I think that the way that I felt confused and frightened about money then also came to him, even though I was trying to make sure I didn't say anything negative about money, neither was I capable of teaching him about money in a way that was empowering and healthy. So that's, that's just an example. We want to look at lineage. Your homework, research, start making a list of some of those things back there that are these generational woundings, these limiting beliefs, these addictions, these abuse patterns in family. I want to say something too, um, lest you shame yourself, is that 40% of us, 40, they're now saying 40 to 50% of us were raised in families or environments with severe emotional, physical, sexual, and or spiritual abuse and trauma. That's practically every other person. So if this has happened to you, it's sadly relatively normal. Uh, it doesn't mean that our parents didn't love us. It doesn't mean that we did anything wrong. Uh, people will often say to children, you made me. You made me hit you, you made me yell at you, you made me molest you, and we were not responsible for what happened to us as children. But now that we're an adult, we're going to be conscious of what happened, sometimes generationally, so that we can change this pattern. And I want to distinguish between abuse and trauma. Trauma can be poverty. Trauma can be being in a war zone. Trauma can be uh, terrible, you know, trauma can be these hurricanes and things that have happened and destroyed people's homes. Trauma is, is an event that happens, but it doesn't have a perpetrator. Abuse has a perpetrator. Abuse is a person or a group of people doing something to you. Uh, I've had clients who've been ritually abused. They had perpetrators doing something to them or an individual or two people or three people doing something to you. That's abuse. Let's look at healing the wounds of childhood and how is that different than lineage? Lineage is when we see a pattern that's generational, like the manic depressive in my family. I also have this sense that there was some molestation on one or both sides of my uh, family lineage. But then when we look at our personal childhood wounds, I'm looking beyond just my family. I'm looking at what were my interactions with the church? What were my interactions with my teachers? What were my interactions with other children? And how did that, uh, those interactions, which could have been physically harmful or emotionally harmful or sexually harmful or spiritually harmful, how did that uh, happen to me? And I also want to face that and make some lists of that and especially any negative or limiting beliefs. A negative or limiting belief or a conflicting belief might be uh, uh, men should be powerful and women should be nice. Uh, 
if I'm going to be liked, I should be agreeable. If I'm going to be desired, I should be uh, sexually uh, exclusive. Men are supposed to have a lot of sexual experience, women are not. Anything, anything, or and this could be for gender, I'm supposed to have the gender that my body looks like, could be something that was wounding. Some of this are called wounds of culture. When a culture says certain things, it's not even a person. It could be what we hear on television, what we hear uh, on the radio, what we see in media. So media often tells us that women are supposed to be one size, that they're supposed to, uh, you know, be a certain, you know, cute, funny, bubbly way. And it's, it might not even be our mother saying this. It might not even be our father saying this. But well, I see it when I'm watching movies. It's, it's so obvious to me over and over these, uh, these statements that are made that are harmful to men or harmful to women. When we expect that men always have to be sexual, that's also harmful to men. When we say men can't cry or they can't have their emotions, that's also harmful to men. So we want to make a list of this. We want to face it. When we face it, we can start to heal it. And then I want to make sure very consciously that I'm putting different messages forward for my child. I want to consciously have these conversations. So with my son, we would watch television together. And during the commercials, we would discuss, like, how do you, what do you think about the way that woman was treated? We, we used to watch uh, America's Next Top Model. And some of the women would say how they didn't want to have a naked photo shoot. And then we would talk about, do you think that's a good idea or a bad idea? Why? And so I was helping my son develop his own critical thinking. And this was, he was age seven, age six, age seven, age eight. Children have good minds very early to support him to, to have a good mind that could figure out ethics. Morals are a rule book, but ethics have to come from within. And now he's dating, and when people are talking to him, they say, you raised a feminist. You raised a young man who's not just trying to say the, you know, the good things so that women will want to have sex with him. They're saying, oh, I believe you know, that women have rights, or I believe in consent. He's like, your son actually lives that. Your son, this is deep in his body. And I say, if we want to stop rape culture, we have to raise our young men to have this ethical, critical thinking. We have to have discussions with them from childhood. And we have to honor their bodies. We have to say, you, get a, you have a right. If you're, if you're not hungry, you don't have to eat. If you don't want to be hugged, you don't have to be hugged. You have a right to your body. You have a right to your sleep. You have a right to your privacy. How can I teach my son that he has to respect someone else's privacy, someone else's body, Someone else's limits if I've never respected his. And the same is true for our girls. How can I expect my girl to know how to say no? To know how to say I have a right to my yeses and nos. I can speak my yeses and nos if I've never given her that right at home. No, you have to eat right now. No, you have to go to sleep right now. I cooked it. You have to eat it. Well, if I'm, you're, you know, you're not, no, you don't get to be angry with me. I'm the parent. I get to be angry. It's my way or the highway. You know, that kind of domineering, tyrannical way of parenting train either tyrants or people who feel powerless. 
So if I want my children to feel empowered and to also have a healthy way of relating with other people, then I have to honor their choices and their personal power and dialogue with them to create win-wins. In his 24 years, I don't think I've ever raised my voice to him. And I did, I'm going to show you, I did this twice in 24 years. And I have raised a boy who's honest, who's kind, who respects himself, who respects women. We do not have to physically punish children to create good people. In fact, if we punish them, we create punishers. We do not have to yell at children to create good people. If we yell at children, we teach them to be yellers or we teach them to feel powerless. Now, for some of us, this is going to be hard. If you're like me, I was raised with people yelling. I was raised with people shaming me. I was raised with it's my way or the highway. And unconsciously, we start to think, oh, I can hardly wait until I'm a parent and then it's going to be my turn. Finally, I'm going to be in charge. Finally, I'm going to do it my way. And this is very unconscious. Please make it conscious. Please make it conscious that you've been waiting your whole life to finally be in power. And true power does not need to be proven. True power does not need to be proven. This is one of my personal mantras. And this gets us to number three, which is being a mature adult. I remember I said that I, I realized that I had never seen a mature-centered adult. I just had this ah realization one, one day. I've never seen one. Have you seen one? Do you know what a mature-centered adult looks like or sounds like? Huh. You know, we don't see them on, on television. In television, there's all these romantic comedies or where people are yelling at each other and making fun of each other. And sometimes the woman's making being made fun of or the man's being made fun of. And we're not actually seeing you know, there's the family guy and you know, these, these things that um, Malcolm in the middle, etc. that that aren't healthy. So what is healthy? So I sat down and I thought about it. And I thought, hmm, I think a mature centered adult would be able to stay centered to stay like a tree with strong roots and flexible branches that when the storms came would be able to flow with them but not break and when i think of the storms of life more money less money losing a job having a partner not having a partner our child being upset about something you know these are all the storms of life our child being sick our parents being sick us being sick you know these are the storms of life do i have the roots that allow me to be resilient do i have this that sense of root and center that allow me allow me to stay calm and creative in these challenges that are interwoven in life and so a mature centered adult is proactive not reactive calm a, a mature centered adult when a challenge comes is able to stay creative and think about how could we create a win-win a mature-centered adult is not acting out of their woundedness. A mature-centered adult can take a breath and calm down before they respond. A mature-centered adult has a mantra that as an adult, I don't have to prove that I have power. As an adult, I have all the power. My child has no power. They're actually uh, dependent on me for life or death. 
they have no power. So when they say, I hate you, or when they say you can't make me, or when they get all angry, or, you know, call me names, or I wish you weren't my mother, when they do all those things, I don't have to take it personally. I just know that they feel powerless because they are, they are powerless. And that I do not need to prove my power. In fact, I want to empower them. So when my child feels powerless, I want to do something to help them feel more powerless, powerful. It's okay to feel like you hate me. Because I know that you love me. I'm not worried. It's okay to say that you hate me. And I, I'm guessing you're upset. How can we work with this? How, what do you need? How can we create a win-win? An example is that there was a point where my son refused to go to school around, around 12, 13, refused to get out of the bed. And I thought about yelling at him. I thought about dragging him to the car. I thought about shoving him in the car and forcing him to go to school. And this, this wisdom voice, and we want to cultivate this wisdom voice, said to me, Francesca, he's small now, but he won't be forever. And if you yell at him and shame him into getting the car, you will break trust with him that will not be repaired. And if you drag him into the car, you will break trust with him in a way that will not be repaired. Think very carefully. You're smarter than this, Francesca. You're smarter than this. And I walked into the kitchen. I walked out of his bedroom. I walked into the kitchen. I sat down. And I thought... And what I thought back to was the parent-teacher night. And at the parent-teacher night, I'd shown up late. I'd shown up dressed like me in a very conservative neighborhood. And that night, none of the parents said hi to me. None of the parents talked to me. The teachers were very pleasant, but the, the parents ostracized me. And at the end of the night, I was at the a picnic table at the back of the school crying, feeling so lonely, feeling so left out. And I had told my son about that. So I was thinking about that in the kitchen. I walked back into his bedroom and I said, Dylan, remember that night where no one spoke to me, where I felt so alone? Do you feel like that every day at school? And I saw this like little air hole. He had the covers pulled over his head. And I saw this like little air hole come up open. And I said, you know, Dylan, not everyone who was successful in life was successful in school. Einstein got D's in math. Many successful people have even flunked out of school. That you're successful at school is not a measure of how successful you are as a human being. But I want you to know, I was a single mother at this time, I want you to know that if I cannot find a way to get you to go to school, Child Protective Services could take you away from me. I could actually lose custody of you. And he pulled back the covers from his head and he said, Mama, please don't give up on me. And from that day forward, he set the alarm, he got up. I never had to tell him ever again, you're running late to school. You need to get dressed. Please hurry. Gone. Because I took the time to understand him. It is our job to understand our children. We're older. We've lived, we've lived through seven. We've lived through 12. We know the hell that childhood is. We have lived through those times. It is our job to remember that 
and, and understand the suffering that they're in. It is not their job to understand us. It is not our, their job to understand the rules before we've even taught them. Or sometimes to remember them. It is our job to be mature, wise, centered, to understand the child is not trying to ruin our day. The child is not, um, not trying to hurt us. The child is in pain. And when I understand that that child is in pain, that that child is in a hell, that is the powerlessness of childhood that I too have gone through, then I can't be angry. That's what I touch into so that I'm never angry with Dylan. That I always come from compassion with Dylan. And I, if I have to prove my authority, I don't have authority. One of my mantras, I'm the adult. It's my job to understand this child. Another one of my mantras. Another one of my mantras is I chose to have this child to give a gift to the future. God willing, this child will live when I am dead. This child is a gift to the future. I am here to serve this child. This child is not here to serve me. This child is not here to love me. If they do, great, bonus points. But my commitment is to love them, period. And to come from a place of love. Mature-centered adults. Four, it helps to, you know, once we did the healing stuff first, because it helps to be healing, <laughs> to be able to have some foundation here. And then learning skill sets. One of my favorite is nonviolent communication. This is where we learn a new way of working with words. So most of us were raised like, how dare you? How could you? You little shit. You this, you that. We're, we're raised with people using words very violently. Do what I say because I said so. Get here. Get here right now. We're, we're, we're raised with demands, commands, denigration, shame, guilt. This is all violence. So when we study with nonviolent communication, we start to learn how to use words effectively, powerfully, to even be more successful at getting what we want without breaking hearts, without ruining psyches along the way. And in nonviolent communication, we look for a win-win. One of my favorite phrases is, would you like to collaborate with me to create a win-win here? <laughs> Instead of it's my way or your way, how can we create a win-win? In nonviolent communication, we seek to offer empathy first. So rather than saying, you have to understand me, you have to get what I'm saying, we actually start with, let me make sure I'm understanding what you're saying. You know, I, I, I'm not a tape recorder. I might have missed something or, you know, my filters, my woundedness may have filtered what you're saying to mean something different than what you meant. So what I, what I think I hear you saying is that, you want to break up with me. Is that, is that close? <laughs> um, what I think I hear you saying is that you're really angry with me because I said that I was going to be home at six and I wasn't. Is that, is that accurate? And maybe you were feeling like your desire to have trust in me, your desire to have integrity isn't met when I don't show up when I say I'm going to. Is, is that close? I actually want to see if I can understand the other person, if I can have empathy for the other person, called building the bridge of empathy that way. And once the person says, yes, yes, you understand. Yes, that's true. Then we can take a breath. And I can say, would you be willing to hear what happened? Would you be willing to hear my perspective? But it's very 
ineffective. It is not effective to say, you have to understand me. You have to get me. You know, I was running late. Traffic was bad. It's very not effective to try to get someone to understand us who's already upset with us. And it is much more effective to offer empathy and understanding for them first. Then they calm down. And now we can invite them to have empathy and understanding for us. So it's, it's uh, simple, but not always easy because this is a new language. This is a new way of being. I, the classes are cheap or free. So many, so many resources online, www.cnbc.org. And I'll also give you that link so that you can find this. Um, number five, so important. It took me so long. Please don't let it take you this long to, to understand this one, embracing self-care. So I used to think that being a good mother meant that I would put my needs aside. You know, I have to drive him here. I have to help him with this project. I have to do this. I have to do that. And these things are so important. And so to be a good mother, I need to cook. I need to clean. And I'm going to put my needs aside. Well, as I was doing that, I was getting more and more upset, more and more resentful, more and more depressed. What? And, you know, I could, I noticed that, you know, my irritation factor was coming. Now, for me, I have personally a very, very strong vow to Dylan. So it didn't, my son. So it didn't normally come out to Dylan. In my case, all of that upset and irritation, depletion would come out toward my partner. And I would end up, you know, ah, you know, you said you take out the garbage and you didn't, or, you know, and I, I would, you know, all these skill sets that I would bring to my son, I wouldn't bring to my partner because I was so depleted. And one day I, I, I just, I was in tears. I couldn't stop crying. I called in sick to work and I took myself to a spa for the day. And it just the whole day, the whole day soaking and laying in a lounge chair and napping and having massage. And the next day I felt like a new person. I felt like I could be so much more compassionate to the world and myself. And I, I started to realize, you know, because I had felt like I was having a nervous breakdown. I started to realize, you know, I don't think it's an option to ignore self-care. I think that if I don't do this, I am going to be detrimental to myself and others. And so I started to, at first it was like once every other week, once every few weeks, Eventually, I started to do it every other week. Eventually, it was once a week to at least have three or four hours where I was out of the house on my own schedule, getting a massage, going to a spa, doing, it could be a gym, doing something that was just for me. It could be walking in a, a park, hiking, but doing something that was just for me that felt it was really nourishing, that I was not on the clock that I didn't have to worry about the laundry, the food, the crying child, the partner, that it could just be for me. And out of that resourcing the self-care, I was capable of using nonviolent communication. I was capable of remembering to my vows to, you know, to treat my child or my partner a certain way. Without that self-care, I didn't have the bandwidth. And part of self-care, I would also say for me, is going to therapy, going to therapy, taking workshops, getting training classes on, on relationship skill sets. That's part of self-care. And at Sexty, <laughs> I just turned Sexty this summer, at Sexty, I would tell you that this healing and this learning is never done, never over. It's not like, oh, I do it for a few years and I'm done. Or when am I going to be healed? It's like peeling the layers of an onion. 
it's going to get better and better and better, but there's another layer. So today I feel like so much joy and peace, so much more joy and peace that I ever felt in my 20s, my 30s, or even my 40s or 50s. And it's taken this ongoing work and I'm still taking classes or retaking classes or going to therapy or taking workshops because you don't go to a gym 10 years ago and say, I worked out. I worked out 10 years ago. My body should be fine right now. We know that if we want our muscles to be strong and vibrant, we have to regularly do exercise or work out. Well, it's the same for our mind. It's the same for our emotions. I call them working in. So we're, we're healing the past. We're developing new skill sets. We're, we're really envisioning what it means to be a mature-centered adult and starting to align our practices with that. And we're embracing self-care. And, and just two more for you. Number six is, it's once again, delicious and wonderful when I recognized it, is giving myself a timeout and teaching my child the things that I needed rather than forcing him to do, forcing him to change. I actually would let him know what I needed in a different way. So one thing is a timeout. Um, in a timeout, we recognize that emotions are the messenger, not the message. So emotions, you know, we don't have very many trainings in emotions, and we often have the sense that either we're suppressing our emotions because they're dangerous, or we're like vomiting them. You have to hear that I'm angry because I'm angry. You have to hear that I'm sad because I'm sad. You know, I have a right to tell you my emotions because that's true for me and that's authentic for me. No, we do not have the right to vomit our emotions over other human beings. That is non-consensual, that is violent, it is not okay. But neither do we want to suppress our emotions. That's also unhealthy. So what do we do? We've got these emotions, I'm feeling angry, I'm feeling sad, I'm feeling scared. What do I do? I'm feeling depressed. What we do is emotions are meant to be the messenger, not the message. They're, they're like a letter that comes to us. And then we need to, we need to open the letter. We need to open the letter and read the letter. So anger lets me know that a boundary has been crossed. I'm the one that needs to hear about the boundary. I, I had a boyfriend that I kept saying, you don't, you don't get to treat me this way. You don't get to treat me this way. Did that help? No, it did not help. One day I said to myself, Francesca, who needs to hear that you don't want to be treated that way? He does. No, Francesca. He does. No, Francesca. No, Francesca. I need to hear that I don't want to be treated that way. Yes, Francesca. Oh, I need to hear that I don't want to be treated that way. And when I could really take that fully into my body, integrate that into my body, that I didn't want to be treated that way. Then instead of yelling, instead of being angry, I could just go to him and say, beloved, I envision a partnership that is kind, considerate, and compassionate. You know, that we, that we take the training, that we do the work, that we heal from the past in such a way that we can be kind, considerate, and compassionate with each other. That's what I envision. Would you be willing to work on that with me? And he said, after he thought about it, no. No, Francesca. The relationship is fine for me the way it is. And when he said that, I thought, okay, 
that's his truth. And my truth is that I really want a relationship that's kind, considerate, and compassionate. So what we need to do is we need to break up. And sometimes we choose anger, and anger is a certain kind of passion. It's a certain kind of connection that we choose that rather than face that maybe it's really not healthy to be with this person. We choose anger rather than the clarity of the necessary conversation. The mature-centered adult is capable of having the necessary conversation in a calm, heart-open way. So anger lets us know boundaries have been crossed. Sadness lets us know that something's important to us. We only grieve about something that's been important. So when I have sadness, then I write that down and I say, I want to make sure that that thing that I've lost, that I bring it back into my life in some way. Now my mother has died, my father has died. I can't bring them back into my life. But there were beautiful things about my bipolar manic depressive mother as well as challenging things. And how can I bring the quality, her creativity, her elegance, how can I bring some of those things into my life? So when I'm sad, I, I look at what was important to me and how can I bring that into my life? Not necessarily the person, but the qualities. If I'm frightened, I invite myself to slow down and really look at things. And if I'm depressed, I make lists, what is working in my life, what is not working in my life. And I take the time to separate out. Depression lets me know that something is out of balance. It lets me know that either physically, emotionally, or in my choices in life, there's something to bring back into balance. And then last but not least is working with against, instead of against temperament. Things come into this world with a temperament. If you've been around children, you know that some children are happy from the beginning, some children are serious from the beginning, some children are, uh, you know, ba barely need any sleep, some children need a lot of sleep. Children have their own temperament. If we, if we make them wrong for having that temperament, we will just create all kinds of drama and trauma in our house. If instead we work with that temperament, we can create a lot of ease. And this is true for our partners. This is true for everyone. You know, at the core, there are nine temperament traits. So I invite you to try this on. Uh, these temperament traits about yourself, your partner, your child. And I'm going to give you the documents so you can go deeper into this. But one of those uh, temperament traits is adaptability. People with high adaptability, you and I are planning to have tea or dinner tonight. And at the last minute, I say, oh, let's go dancing instead. If you have high adaptability, you'd be able to go, oh, sure, okay, let's go dancing. If you have low adaptability, you would say, hey, we plan to have dinner. I don't feel like I can change at, on a dime like this. This is not okay for me. It would feel very upsetting to you to have to change like that. Well, children are higher low adaptability. Children with low adaptability, instead of just saying, oh, it's time to go now, get dressed now. Oh, instead of going to the store, we're going to dinner. We need to give them advance notice. Uh, we're going to leave in 15 minutes. We're going to leave in 10 minutes. We're going to leave in five minutes. It's time to start getting ready now. Or letting them know way in advance, oh, it looks like we're not going to be able to go to the store tomorrow and that we're going to need to go to dinner. 
it's with people who have low adaptability, we want to give them a heads up. Number two is activity. They're high activity and low activity people. Activity, high activity people, you know, their, their you know, foot is tapping and they're, they're always wanting to do something. And, and low activity are just, you know, calmer, they're slower, they're not moving as quickly, they don't need to. There's, um, and three is intensity. And intensity is the reaction to things. So people with low intensity, let's say trip and skin their knee, they go, ow, I should get a Band-Aid. Someone with high intensity would be like, ow, ow, I skinned my knee, ow. And so children and adults have either high or low intensity. Uh, number four is sensitivity. Sensitivity often shows up with intensity, but not always. Sensitivity are the people that, you know, always need the tags cut out of their clothes. And they, um, you know, if socks have a little ridge in them, it drives them crazy. They can be sensitive to to sounds or light or odors. And so there's just high or low sensitivity. And number five is rhythmicity. People who are highly rhythmic go to sleep the same time every day, get hungry the same time every day, low rhythmicity, they might stay up all night one night, they might you know, sleep all day the next day, they might, one day they're hungry, one day they're not. And this is also true for children and babies. Um, number six is approach avoidance. So people who are approach, you, you put some of babies, you put something new in the center of the floor, they'll crawl to it. People who have avoidance, you put something new in the center, they'll move away from it. Uh, seven is persistence. So if you're if they're playing with a certain puzzle, it's kind of like how long they'll keep playing with it to work it out. And persistence goes throughout our lives. So some people have that ability to just keep working at something to work it out. Other people get frustrated very easily. Um, eight is mood. You know, the happy child, the fearful child, the serious child. <coughs> and nine is distractibility. So you could have a child that's persistent unless they're distracted, <laughs> which could be by sound or lights or people. Now, some of these temperament clusters are considered more challenging, but are often leaders. They're, they're very, they're, they're leaders, they're active, actors, people who have high intensity, high sensitivity. Uh, they're very dramatic. And there's a book called Raising Your Spirited Child that talks about this as well. It's how to work with some of these more challenging temperaments in a way that is fun, in a way that creates joy rather than creates this sense of suffering and make wrong where the parent is just, you know, it's so hard to have this kind of child and then the child feels like they're always being made wrong. This issue of temperament goes all the way through adulthood. So my child has, you know, who had this temperament as a child, he has this temperament now. He's actually a little bit avoidant. He's, um, not very adaptable, he is very sensitive, and, uh, and he has a more serious mood. And you know, everybody kind of wants the happy, adaptable, rhythmic child. And I didn't get that. But I've developed a great relationship with a great young man because I worked with his temperament instead of against it. I want to 
of return this to our lovely Lucia Gabriella and to see if you have some questions about any of these. And once again, for our listeners, you're going to be getting uh, part of my gift to you is also some of these documents so that you'll have more information to chew into for yourself, more resources. But how about you, Lucia Gabriela? Get some questions for me. I love the mantra that you have. If you could repeat it again. If I have to prove my power, I've already lost it. If I have to prove my power, I've already lost my power. So I say that to myself to remember when I start to get, you know, like, oh, I have to prove that I'm the authority and I have to show you that you have to do things my way. I remind myself, it's like, wait, if you're really in your power, there's nothing to prove. You can relax because you, parent, you have all the power. There is nothing to prove. That's beautiful. And when you were talking about the, the first one about healing the trauma of lineage, I, I love epigenetics and they have shown that, you know, in the DNA, which we carry information, they have been, they have been uh, showing that, you know, the information gets stored in the DNA for like seven generations. Now it's up to 12 generations. So it's beautiful and interesting to see that um, the homework that you are assigned us to go deep into our a family and a, a background and really understand where they're coming from because a lot of this mindset about money, relationship, um, work and family and children and parenting and sexuality, it has some kind of like deep uh, root cause in, in the path that is not even ours. So thank you for the homework. And in and, and the same um, in the same topic about uh, healing the lineage beside the homework that you assign what else do you recommend with your experience of shamanic uh, practice that you have like what else will you incorporate it because I know I understand that journaling is a great way to process it and you know uh, bring it to the surface and and seeing it become more conscious about about it creating some kind of like click 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 and, and standing it uh, it creates healing what else in your experience do you feel that our audience can do or, or try to explore to heal at a deeper level their lineage? Well, thank you so much for asking that. Some of the deep processes for healing some of this past trauma, I recommend uh, inner voice dialogue, Jungian psych psychotherapy, depth psychotherapy, uh, the shamanic soul coaching that uh, I teach, the somatic uh, sensual healing that I teach that Lucia Gabriela is trained in, that these processes that help kind of, um, you know, if you think of a car, kind of lift the hood of the car so that we can really look underneath and we can start to heal and work with these old patterns and we can start to rewrite them and rewire them. And this is done in some of these uh, psychological processes and some of these somatic processes by uh, going back really to the seven-year-old, the 10-year-old, the 13-year-old. We can't just heal by talking about it in the present, by saying, oh yeah, you know, this thing happened to me when I was 10 and it was really hard. Is these various processes help us go back to that time period and create new wiring there. The brain is both hardware and software. 
the hardware, the lobes of the brain, the, the synapses of the brain. But the synapses can be rewritten like coding in a computer. So as we do these deep processes, we start to create new wiring that says, you know, my 10-year-old, instead of feeling frightened, now learns to feel more resilient or more powerful or feel like she had choices that she didn't have when she was, you know, actually when she was 10. I, um, I didn't used to have a nurturing inner self. I had a critical self that told me I was stupid and I failed and how could I say that? How could I wear that? And it was very hard for me to be successful in life because this inner critic was so loud and it was hard for me to accept love in life because this inner critic was so loud and I even felt I had to hide who I really was because I felt it was unlovable. And as I worked with these, you know, these deep processes, I was able to find an inner nurturer a voice in my head, a part of me that could say, you get to make mistakes. All human beings are imperfect. You get to try again. A mistake is like, you know, film where it's take one, take two, take three. You get to try again. That's okay. I love you. And then actually that nurturing self could talk to the 10-year-old. And, and I have a vision of this nurturing self holding the 10-year-old on her lap. And when I do this, I'm actually creating new pathways in my brain, pathways of calm, pathways of peace. It's never too late to have a happy childhood. It's never too late to actually rewrite these things. And um, so I really recommend for our listeners, if you're someone who's noticing, wow, I think there is a lot of lineage trauma and I, you know, and what I, what happened to me in my childhood, there's, there's a lot of pain there. Uh, I recommend some of these deep, process works for you and I will include a list of resources for you and I want to let you know that if money is a problem uh, you can often look for a school that is teaching these and and students who are becoming these types of therapists and healers need practice clients and it's often a way for you to get very inexpensive sessions and still get great sessions that are on your path to healing. Yeah, beautiful. And one of one of the things I love about uh, training with you is that you have always reminded us that to help the individual to recover from trauma is is not help them where they are at right now at that level, but where the trauma happened. And it had been very profound, um, you know, the way that we can help individuals in that aspect of their lineage and any kind of like trauma they have experienced. The other thing that I would like to introduce the audience a little bit and just to give them an insight of, of your work is because you have been one of the individuals that I have seen such integration of your archetype of your of all aspect of yourself and even you in a child so and for our audience that you're listening um, the conscious relationship and couple and parenting summit is an opportunity for you to to gain tools to you know, create a relationship with you desire in your life, but not just with the people outside, but pretty much start with within. And and the parenting uh, summit and the speakers, I'm inviting everyone to apply their tools, not just with your children, but also bring it back into your own individual, into your inner child, into that child within that uh, sometime experience, some kind of like traumatic experience, some kind of abuse, and, and you can apply whatever we would do with a kid, you know, our own kid that we birthed them, uh, 
do it with this, within yourself. So I would like you, Francesca, to, to share a little bit more about the inner child because you are such an incredible, fascinating mentor that has come after this, um, this, this healing when it comes to the inner child and integrating it. Yeah, I think you make a very good point when we're talking about conscious parenting. How can I treat my child in a loving, kind, compassionate, nurturing way if I'm treating my own inner child in a way that's shaming, denigrating, abusive, controlling, and demanding? You know, how can I actually give that externally when I'm not giving it internally? Some people actually even end up resenting their child. They resent the attention that their child gets or the gifts that their child gets or, you know, the attention that their child might get from their grandparents or from their partner. So, yeah, this, this working on our own inner child is so important. And uh, for me, I actually had a, a counselor that would say, when I would get very, very upset, she would say, Francesca, I want you to turn around and find that little girl inside and give her a hug. And, you know, instead of seeking to change your partner, instead of seeking to get this attention or approval externally, I would like you to turn around and find that little girl and hug her. And I, I swear to God, the first uh, probably five years or longer that I worked with this counselor, every time she said, turn around and find the little girl inside, what I thought in my head was, fuck you. Fuck you. I don't want to find a little girl inside. I don't want to take care of a little girl inside. I've had to take care of myself for way too long. Thank you. And I don't want to have to start taking care of some fucking little girl, too. I want someone else to take care of me. You know, it's somebody, he's an adult or they're an adult. They should be, they should be taking care of me. They should be pulling their weight. And I just had a lot of anger. So I resisted the inner child work. And, uh, you know, but she just very calmly would say this. You know every session almost and one day I was feeling upset about something and upset about my partner upset about something and the little thought just came up what would happen if I actually turned around and tried to look for the little girl and so I, I closed my eyes and I tried to see this little girl on the inside and what I saw was this little person maybe four years old in a dark room, like kind of at the back of a dark room in the corner with her back to me, um, frightened, frightened and, and, and almost like she'd been crying. And I had this sense that she didn't want to talk to me, that she didn't trust me, and that she was actually upset with me. And as I stood at the entrance to the room and I was thinking, well, why is she upset with me and why doesn't she want to talk to me? What I realized was that, and I think I was maybe um, in my 40s, like maybe my mid-40s, and I, I thought, hmm, you know, for the last, you know, 25 years or more, I've been an adult, I've been on my own, making my own choices, but I haven't known that she was there. I've been making choices without, without taking her into consideration. So maybe she's angry that she's been ignored for all these years. Hmm. So I said to her, you know, when you were two, I was two. When you were five, I was five. When you were six, six, seven, seven, ten, ten. You know, when you were little, I was little. And I couldn't protect you. I couldn't protect you from life, parents, church, school. I couldn't protect you from any of that. 
And in a way, I didn't realize until this moment that I had grown up, but you were still there. I thought that when I grew, that when my body grew up, that every part of me, also every inner aspect, every part of my psychology was also growing up. I didn't realize that my body was growing up, but that the 10-year-old was still in there, the 5-year-old was still in there, the um, nervous 13-year-old was still in there. I didn't realize that you were still in there. And now that I know that you're there, I want to be a good nurturing adult for you. I'm not sure I actually know how, and you don't have to trust me right away, but I would like to prove myself worthy of your trust, and I'm going to do my best to check in with you and listen. And at first, um, she didn't actually talk. Like, I would just kind of get a feeling, like a, I don't know, almost like an uncomfortable feeling, and I started to uh, kind of close my eyes and, and and wonder is that the little girl and then I would get a picture you know a picture of a sky and I go oh maybe she wants to go outside or a picture of uh, water and I think oh maybe she wants me to go into water or something like that and um, so I would you know work with her non-verbally and there was a point and this gets more into relationships with adults where I had a lovely partner who I was helping him heal his inner child and in our relationship, I had one of those moments where I had that discomfort inside. And I realized that she wanted to come out and meet him. She wanted to actually, for the first time, verbalize and meet another human being. And then that was the beginning of a whole nother level of healing when she finally started to uh, meet other people and she started to become uh, able to communicate with me in language rather than just in picture. And today she's part of my creativity, she's part of my uh, teaching, she's part of my counseling, she's part of my love life, she's a very, very integrated part of my life. And you know, the child carries like innocence and wonder and so many beautiful uh, emotions and opportunities. So I, I, I am so much happier having her a vibrant part of my life. And I've also been able to develop a nurturing adult to hold her, which is also it's so much nicer to have a kind voice in my head that forgives me and tells me I'm great than having that voice in my head that used to criti criticize and denigrate me. Thank you. You are an amazing mentor and fascinating, and this is just a taste of the incredible wisdom that you share with all of us, your students. So it is my honor to have you here in this summit and, and share a tiny, tiny, tiny little part of what is possible. So how can we find you? I would love to have you all find me. And uh, my gift to you is a free one-hour coaching session where we can really go deeper into your personal questions and concerns about parenting or healing the inner child and yourself so you can have a great life. And also, I'm going to be giving you resources, very wonderful resources about the temperament scale, about nonviolent communication, about the process of healing. And you can find me by emailing relationshipdiva at gmail.com. That's relationshipdiva, D-I-V-A, at gmail.com. Or going to my website, francescagentile.com. 
Francesca, F-I-R-A-N-C-E-S-C-A, Gentile, G-E-N-T-I-L-L-E.com. And I'm excited to be talking with you and working with you in a more personal way and having you create healing hearts for yourself, your family, and your child. So thank you so much, Francesca, for joining us today in the summit. We appreciate you. Uh, it's been my pleasure, Lucia Gabriela, to participate with you. I am so impressed with everything that you're creating, and I am honored to be collaborating in creating a world of wholeness, of peace, of harmonious relationships. Aho. Mm. Yes, 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 yes. Let's just give that joy. Yes. <laughs> so excited. So thank you. And we're going to thank you, our amazing community, for saying yes to the summit, for joining, for watching every single episode, for learning, for allowing yourself to, and giving yourself permission to explore more about creating conscious relationship, parenting, and even conscious divorce. So we appreciate you so much, and we'll see you in our next episode of the Conscious Relationship Uncoupling and Parenting Summit. See you next time. Bye.